Okay. Daniel chapter 3. Um, feels like it's been a while since we've done these. Um, and tonight we're going to go back to a story that we've all heard from a being a child. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Or, if you want to know their official names, as we discuss, it's Daniel chapter 1. You can see them there. Y'all heard the story. Would you dare to venture to say there's more to this story than you've heard? And it truly is amazing, because at the end of this story, what you're going to find is the message of the gospel. You're going to find that there's a hero in the story. You're going to find the story of redemption. You're going to see the story of freedom. You're going to see the story of, uh, of righteousness. You're going to see it all come to play in this story. And it, let's, read, let's read chapter 3, uh, and then we'll work through this. And uh, let's see if we can say the thing that we want. The two things we want to say at the end of every one of these is the Bible's better than what we've made it, and there's more to the story. And I think if we see the truth in the Word of God, we can say that tonight. So this is a story in Daniel chapter 3, and we will start in verse 1. It says, Nebuchadnezzar, the king made an image of gold, the height of which was 60 cubits, and its width, width 6 cubits. He set it upon the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king sent word to assemble the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, and the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces to come to the dedication of the image that the Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. Then the satraps, the prefects, and the governors, the counselors, the treasurers, the judges, the magistrates, and all the rulers of the provinces were assembled for the de dedication of the image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. And they stood before the image that Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, To you the command is given, O peoples, nations, and men of every language that at the moment you hear the sound of the horn, flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, you are to fall down and worship the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall immediately be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. Therefore, at that time when all the people heard the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, the bagpipe, and all kinds of music, all the peoples, nations, and men of every language fell down and worshipped the golden image that Nebuchadnezzar the king had set up. For this reason, at that time, certain Chaldeans came forward and brought charges against the Jews. They responded and said to Nebuchadnezzar the king, O king, live forever. You, O king, have made a decree that every man who hears the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and the bagpipe, and all kinds of music is to fall down and worship the golden image. But whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast into the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. There are certain Jews who have, you have appointed over the administration of the province of Babylon, namely Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. These men, O king, have disregarded you. They do not serve your gods or worship the golden image which you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar, in rage and anger, gave orders to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Then these men were brought before the king. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the golden image that I have set up? Now, if you are ready... At the moment, you hear the sound of the horn, the flute, the lyre, the trigon, the psaltery, and bagpipe, and all kinds of music, to fall down and worship the image that I have made very well. But if you do not worship, 
You will immediately be cast in the midst of a furnace of blazing fire. And what God is there who can deliver you out of my hands? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego replied to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to give you an answer concerning this matter. If it be so, our God, who we serve, is able to deliver us from the, fire, the furnace of blazing fire. And he will deliver us out of your hand, O king. But even if he does not, let it be known to you, O king, that we are not going to serve your gods or worship the golden image that you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was filled with wrath, and his facial expression was altered towards Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. He answered by giving orders to heat the furnace seven times more than it was usually heated. He commanded certain valiant warriors who were in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego in order to cast them into the furnace of blazing fire. Then these men were tied up in their trousers, their coats, their caps, and all their other clothes, and were cast into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire. For this reason, because the king's command was urgent and the furnace was, has been made extremely hot, the flame of the fire slew those men who carried up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell into the midst of the furnace of blazing fire, still tied up. Then Nebuchadnezzar the king was astounded and stood up in haste, and he said to his high officials, Was it not three men we cast bound into the midst of the fire? They replied to the king, Certainly, O king. He said, Look, I see four men loosed and walking about in the midst of the fire without harm, and the appearance of the fourth is like the son of the gods. The Nebuchadnezzar came near to the door of the furnace of blazing fire. He responded and said, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, come out, your servants of the Most High God, come here. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came out of the midst of the fire. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on the bodies of these men, nor was their hair was the hair off their heads singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Nebuchadnezzar responded and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who put their trust in him, violating the king's command, and yielded up their bodies so as to not serve or to worship any god except their own god. Therefore I make a decree that any people, nation, or tongue that speaks anything offensive against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego shall be torn limb from limb, and their houses reduced to a rubbish heap, inasmuch as there is no other god who is able to deliver in this way. Then the king caused Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego to prosper in the province of Babylon. What an amazing story that is. And uh, before we go on any farther, uh, let's pray over this word, okay? Lord, we thank you for this opportunity to come and to read this chapter. Lord, this is a, a story that we've heard all, uh, growing up. We've heard it so many times in our lives. And Lord, I pray tonight that we would see it in a totally different way. We would see it for the depths of the truth that it is. We would see it for the beauty that it beholds. We would see it for what it truly is, a type and a shadow pointing to you and what you would do for all those whom you would come to save. Help us tonight, Lord. Give us understanding. We ask these things in your name. Amen. Well, let's start off here really quickly. And if it's perfect timing because if you remember being in First Peter... In our sermon, the first sermon we ever did out of 1 Peter, remember what it was on? Being in exile. And it just so happens that lo and behold, 
these three individuals are exiles. Where are they living at? They're living in Babylon. That's significant, and that's important. They're living in Babylon, but their home is in Jerusalem. There's so much depth even in that. Because what we see is in 1 Peter that every child of God that is roaming this earth is an exile. That we are not at home. That we are going to be exiles until the day we come to our home. Now, just like Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego, they were exiles in Babylon. Their true home was in Jerusalem. And do you know, Wes, as we as exiles, where our true home is? New Jerusalem. So already, we can tell that this is going to be a typology, pointing to what Christ will do. And at the end of the story, it's going to be something that He does to all those who are His. This is not a small detail that we can overlook, that they were living in Babylon, they were exiles, but their home was in Jerusalem, points to us, because here's something that is significant as well, that when we go to the book of Revelation and we find in chapter 17 and chapter 18, you will see Babylon come into play again. Chapter 17 is the, the doom of Babylon. Chapter 18 is Babylon has fallen, the lament for Babylon. Because we see that in Babylon, we see from the Tower of Babel, that if all the rebellion of God, all these false uh, ideas and religions, they, they can stem from this Tower of Babel. They can stem from Babylon. And over and over in the Bible, and especially in the book of Revelation, we see that the word and the term Babylon is used in the Bible as a stereotypical enemy of God. It is uh, the, the enemy of God and His people, and it represents the fallen world and sin that we live in. So when God comes on that last day and Babylon falls, that is the falling of this world. It is the falling of this sinful place. It is the falling of the enemies of God. So what's symbolic here is that they were exiles in Babylon. And now as we walk on this world today, we're exiles in Babylon as well. Because one day when He comes back, Babylon and all the world system and all the rebellion and everything that is the enemy of God, as you find in Revelation 17 and 18, will fall. Isn't that amazing? Those two parallels are already. That this story is going to talk about your salvation as well, but it's also going to talk about God's rescue to a bunch of exiles who were in Babylon, whose home was in Jerusalem. That's us as well. Make no mistake about that detail. It is so important. And it will be out of this land in Babylon. God will rescue them and protect them as He will do to all His people as He rescues from this present evil age. I love that detail. It's the little things, right? It's the little things we overlook that they are not in their home. Their home is in Jerusalem and our home is New Jerusalem. Both in Babylon, one symbolically, they were truly in Babylon. I think that's an important and amazing detail. Now, the next thing we see is that, that the king here sets up an image not to bow down to this image. Now, this image is a weird-looking image because if you look out and you measure the, 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 the cubits and everything, it, most times the, the, the measurements will come out to be about 90 foot tall and about 9 feet wide. So this is a tall statue, but not very wide. So 90 feet tall, 9 feet wide is roughly the dimension. And the choice is simple. You bow and live or you don't and die. That was the instruction that they were given here. And what's interesting is we see here in this story that in verse 4, the herald goes out to you uh, to command all the peoples, nations, and men of every language. This is a similar call that we find in Revelation 
chapter 13. It says this, And it will be given to him to make war with all the saints, to overcome them, and authority over them. Every tribe and people and tongue and nation was given to them. This is talking about this beast, and it's talking about this symbolic language that we see in Revelation 13. But there's a call here for all those from every nation, language, tribe, and tongue. We're going to get into that a little bit more later. But the command that is going out to bow the knee to this false image, to this false God, to this king who thinks he is the deity here, it goes out to every person, people, nations, and language which is what we see in Revelation as well. You see, the, you see the symbolic nature starting to pull out. Exiles, Babylon, every nation, every language, every tongue, it's starting to reach out already in the first few verses that we see. And then we, if you, if you know anything about Daniel and, or you have time to read it, you go back to Daniel chapter 2 and you see a vision of Daniel. And in this vision, or the king has the vision and Daniel interprets the vision. And in this, there's a giant statue. And then you see the di there's four different parts to this, and Daniel gives that interpretation of what it is. But we see that the head is made of gold, and that represents Babylon and the king. What's the first command in the Ten Commandments? You shall have no other gods before me. Isn't this what's at stake here? You're in exile, you're in Babylon, and here's the thing. You shall have no other gods before me. Here comes this big statue to this king of Babylon who, who is in great power. And Exodus 20 tells us these words. Therefore God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God. Visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children and the third and fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing loving kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commands. So now we see what is at stake is the first command, that we shall have no other gods before him. This is what it's at stake. But there's a great image here to bow and to not be cast into this furnace. But we also see this language we just mentioned in Revelation 13 talking about those who worship the beast, who won't bow to this beast, who won't give in to this beast. And you know who that is? It's everyone whose names have been written in the Lamb's Book of Life from the foundation of the world. That's what it says here. Listen to what it says in Revelation 13. In verse 8, or 7, it talks about all the, uh, to make war with the saints, every tribe, every nation, every language, every tongue. It says, to who dwell on earth will worship him, talking about the, this end time. Everyone whose name is not written in, written in the Lamb, or the, written from the foundation of the world in the book of life of the Lamb who had been slain. It goes down a little farther. And listen to what verse 15 of Revelation 13 says. And it was given to him to give breath to the image of the beast, so that the image of the beast would even speak. And as so... Many as did not worship the image of the beast to be killed. So if you didn't worship this image and you didn't fall down to this image, you would die. It's this image. It's this, it's this, it's this royal deity they think that you are to bow down to. And we see this language picking up. It's, it's, 
Those who do not worship are the ones whose name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. Now, why will Daniel, or it's in Daniel, I keep saying Daniel, why will Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego not bow the knee to this image? Because their names were written in the Lamb's Book of Life before the foundation of the world. They are not going to do this. Those whom will worship the devil, those whom will give in to this, those are the ones whose names are not written in the Lamb's Book of Life. The Bible is very clear. But if your name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life, then your future is sealed, your eternity is sealed, and you won't bow to these other deity, quote-unquote, or idols of worship. The final analysis that we see in this statue that is revealed in Daniel 2 is what? It's ultimately destroyed. The stone that was cut out of the mountain will crush these kingdoms, and God's kingdom will endure forever. That's the vision that we see. Nebuchadnezzar just has this vision. He says, listen, I'm not going to fall. I'm not going to do it. So I'm going to erect this statue. Think about this. He just has this vision. Daniel tells him the vision. He says that in, in chapter 2, if you're, if you're still there, right above it in verse 44, it says, In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed, and that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all kingdoms, but itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw a stone that was cut out of the mountain with hands, that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to that king will take place in the future, so the dream is true and the interpretation is trustworthy. He just hears this interpretation of this dream that the kingdom of God is going to come and crush all these people and his kingdom is going to set up forever. Next chapter, it wrecks a 90-foot tall image. It says, come bow down to this. If you do it, you'll live. Isn't that the promise of the enemy? Isn't that what he promises? Come do this and you'll live. Come live like you want to. Enjoy it now. There's no hell. There's nothing. This God's love. He won't do this. And he, the promise is this. You do this and you'll live. You don't have to worry about anything. It, it promises one thing, but it always deceives. Because we know that ultimately at the end, the kingdom of God will stand. That's just some upfront stuff on this. Bring it to Nebuchadnezzar and, and the image and the statue that's at stake. But we know what happens. We know that they do not bow. Why don't they bow? They're gods. They're gods. They're, they're God's people. They're exiles in Babylon. They're not going to bow. But what's the consequence? Fiery furnace. Let's talk about this furnace. This furnace is so intriguing because the details of this are so important. This term and this word, fiery furnace or furnace of fire, we find the same use of that in Matthew. In Matthew chapter 13, it starts in verse 36, and to bring kind of um, context to the story is that in verses 24 through 30 of Matthew 13, he tells the story of the tares among the wheat. What does he say? He says, listen there's going to be good seed and then the enemy come and planted bad seed and, and you know, they're, they're growing there together and enemy has done this. Do you, they're asking, do you now, would you want to pull up one for, before the other? And he says, no, 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 no. I want you to let the good grow with the bad and the reapers will come. And the reapers will come and they'll gather up the tares, they'll bind them in the bundles, they'll burn them, but they'll gather up the wheat into the barn. Don't bring one up before the other. Don't secretly rapture one before the other. 
let them grow and grow and grow until the harvest. Then they come to him. The disciples come and they said, explain the parable to us. Jesus does. And see if you can see the, the furnace of fire in this context. Verse 36, he says, Then he left the crowds and went into the house. His disciples came to him and said, Explain to us the parable of the tares of the field. And he said, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, and the field is the world. And as for the good seed, these are the sons of the kingdom, and the tares are the sons of the evil one. And the enemy who sowed them is the devil. And here it comes, listen. And the harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. So just as the tares are gathered up and burned in with fire, so it shall be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send forth His angels, and they will gather out of His kingdom all stumbling blocks and those whom commit lawlessness, verse 42, and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. But then the righteous will shine. How do you, let me stop here real quick. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. The righteous will shine. How are you going to have righteousness? Your righteousness is not your righteousness. You've got the righteousness of Christ. That's the only righteousness you have. Then the righteous will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. There it is. Amanda, you said it the other night. When you get down to not knowing what to pray, what do you say? Thank you that I can say, Father. They will shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. He who has ears, let him hear. This fire of furnace is the same language, the same wording used as those who will spend eternal, eternity in fire and damnation forever and ever. Here's Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego are in this fire. This is the fire that we see. If you look in history and you look at some of these furnaces and the way they were used, <laughs> this is so cool. In a, sense, in a sense, when you hear what I'm saying, we understand that it's, there's some coolness when you get into the biblical depth of it. These furnaces were thought to have been used to cremate and dispose of the dead. So now you've got this fiery furnace that represents the eternal damnation of those who are not righteous uh, in the sight of God. And now we have this in antiquity being used as those who is for the dead. How are we born into this world? Dead in sin and trespass. And unless you have the righteousness of Christ, guess how you'll die? Dead in sin. So the furnace that was used to dispose of the dead, to cremate those who were not living, is the same wordage being used to describe the eternal punishment of hell. There's beauty in this, this story. It is so much deeper than what we've made it because you see this story coming. You see that these exiles who have been called by God, they're in Babylon, but that's not their home. And those whose name is written in the land's book of life, they'll never bow down to this image. They'll never give their soul to the devil because they're God's people. And their home is New Jerusalem. The furnace in this story represents the wrath of God towards sin and hell. The Bible says, Hebrews 12, 29, says that our God is a consuming fire. This is the image. In every person that is born, we're born what? Dead in sin. Put us in the fire symbolically. That's where we're born. 
The wrath of God is upon us. By nature, we're deserving of wrath. That's the story of you and me. But just to add another detail to it, if I may, were they thrown in and all their limbs moving around? No, they weren't. What were they? They were bound. They were in chains. They were in bondage. This is the story of us before salvation, isn't it? Slave to sin, bound to do the will of the devil, unable to free yourself. They're tied. They they can't do anything about it. They can't rescue themselves. They're in bondage. They're enslaved. They're bound. They're not in freedom. And now they're in this fire representing the eternal damnation. That's the story of every person, isn't it? That's how by nature we are, deserving of this wrath, deserving of this fire, deserving of this eternal damnation, because there's none righteous, no, not one. There's none deserving of this. There's not one person that's ever born that could say, I don't deserve to be there. That's the story of us all. Bound, enslaved. We talked about this. Remember the children of Israel in Egypt? They were slaved. They were chained. They were bound. And they couldn't free themselves. This is the story of you and me. This is the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, these exiles in Babylon, whose home was really Jerusalem, wouldn't serve the gods of this world, thrown into the fire, bound, bondage of sin, bondage of the will. This is the story of you and me, every person at birth. They also say something very amazing in here. They say this. They say, listen, our God is able to deliver us. He can do it. He could pull us out. But even if He doesn't, He's still God. Even if He doesn't, He doesn't owe it to us. Isn't that the story of salvation as well? Could He? Could he reach down and save every creature he wanted to? Absolutely. But can we say, like we've said, Taylor says it so well, if I end up in hell tomorrow, you know what I would say? He was perfectly just and fair to put me there because there's nothing I've ever brought to him that he would repay me. You see the tone that they say? He can do it if he wanted to. But even if he doesn't, he's still God. And until we can say that, we don't understand who God is. But that even goes through the troubles and the trials of this life, doesn't it? If God wanted to pull you out of every heartache for the first time you said a prayer, He could do it. He could pull you out of any trial that He's put you in just like that. And our praise would go to the heavens, wouldn't it? Oh, God, thank you. But can we do what they do? Could we say, Boy, He's able to answer it. He's able to deliver me out of it. He's able to do it quickly. But even if He doesn't, He's still God. And He's still with me. That's what they're saying. Even if He doesn't, He's with me. Let it be known. Can you say that? Can I say that? Even if my life is filled with heartache from every now day from now on to eternity, He could, ta- he could take it all away But even if he doesn't, he's still walking with me. There's nothing unfair. We've labored this point, haven't we? There's nothing unfair if anyone is in hell. 
Taylor made this point coming up here, and we get into a lot of, we like a forensic shows and, you know, true life crime and all that stuff. And she says, here's the problem. You're standing in front of the judge. You've got the murder weapon in your hand. You've got the fingerprints all over the murder weapon. You've got surveillance footage showing you do it. You're guilty. You're red-handed. Your charge is murder. And you've got 15 people that are guilty of the same thing. Does the judge look at those people and say, now, do you want to go free? It's up to you. You tell me. You want to go free? No, 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 no. The judge can have mercy on one if he wants. But we can't say that the others, well, they should have got off too. That's not fair. No, they committed the crime. We're all guilty of this crime. Every person is that guilty. Even if he doesn't, he's God. This is the nature of everyone. If you could symbolically see this, that everyone that is born is bound, enslaved to sin. They're in this, deserving of this fire, deserving of this punishment. And that's your hope. That's where everyone goes unless you have a rescuer. Did I just give the end away? Because <laughs> there's going to be one come. And he's going to set them free that they couldn't set themselves free. They're in this heat, they're in this fire, they're in this punishment, bound, enslaved, and there's no one there to help them. What can they do? What can you do? It seems like a desperate picture, doesn't it? The heat was elevated and intense seven times. Number of completion, number of perfection, number of the, that God is perfect in all of His ways. The heat was elevated as it is intense, but not intense to the even think about the intensity and the wrath of that fire in eternity. Can you imagine the wrath of God? I mean, do we ever stop and think about the wrath of God? We can't. We can't in our minds think about the fury and the wrath that God will pour out on all unrighteousness when He comes. This heat is elevated seven times. And what's amazing about this, it kills the people who are trying to throw them in there. It is that hot. It is that intense, but doesn't come close to the unmatched fury and wrath and, and, and torturous setting that hell is. But what happens? What happens? The king gets up. And he looks into the fire. And what does he say? What? What is this? Did we not put three? But there's four. And the Bible makes this note. That they were loosed. And walking around. They'd been set free. This wrath that they deserved. This wrath that they were in, this fury that they were in, the slavement they were in, the bondage they were in. They couldn't do anything about it. But here comes Christ. What does He do? What's the first thing He does? He sets them free. The things that are binding them, the things that are enslaving them, He undoes it. What does John 8 tell us? For who the sun sets free, you're free indeed. This is the story. 
of redemption. This is the story of the rescuer. This is the story of the hero that has come to save the day. And then they come out of this furnace. You see what happens? They've been escaped of the wrath that was due them. This wrath that they were in, that only by the grace of God, that He comes in, but He's in the middle of this fire. What's important about that? Why couldn't it have just been they weren't there? Like, they just were loosed, and they come walking out. But don't make any mistake about it. There's so much significance of that, that Christ was in the fire. Why don't, you, why, don't you have, why don't you have to suffer the wrath of God if you're a believer? Because He suffered the wrath of God for you. That punishment that was yours, He took it upon Himself. That wrath of God that's going to be dispensed on every creature in eternity that is not a child of God, that wrath, if you're a believer, that wrath was poured out on the Son on your behalf. He took the fire. He took the wrath. He took the punishment that was yours. He went there and did that on the cross. Took the fire. Took the wrath. Took it all for you if you're a believer. That's why He's in the fire. That's why He's in the middle of it because He was the propitiation. He did come to save us. He did come to fulfill the wrath of God. This is the thing about it. We we as Christians, we overlook this sometime and we say, well, listen, listen, listen. You know, my sins are done away with, so, you know, they're just done. They're forgotten. God is just. Those sins just don't, poof, magically disappear. They have to be atoned for because God is just and He's righteous. And every sin has to be accounted for. He who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of Christ. He didn't stand outside the fire and say, loose yourself. He took the fire of the cross. He took the wrath of the cross. He took the punishment that was due us in our place so He could come who were dead in sin, who could walk right in the middle of it and untie you and unloose you and set you free and take you out of the punishment that you were due and set you into freedom. This is what's going on here in the story of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. What should have been their death now become their life. They became alive. Isn't that the story of salvation again? This was where they were supposed to die. But by their rescuer, they rose to live again. You were dead in sin, but Christ made you alive. He set you free. What a story it is. Oh, but just not quite over yet. Maybe you've read these details and you think, this is, this is a cool detail, but is there significance in it? Oh, there is. Let's read in verse 27. The satraps, the prefects, the governors, and the king's high officials gathered around and saw in regard to these men that the fire had no effect on their bodies. Of these men, nor was the head of their hair singed, nor were their trousers damaged, nor had the smell of fire even come upon them. Let me tell you what. We love our campfire services. No matter how far I try to stay away from the fire, 
no matter what I do. I'll come in. Can you smell me? Absolutely. What does this mean? What does this mean? Well, God came to save us. He came to rescue us. Stand in our place to receive the wrath of God, punishment that was due us, set us free. But now there's wrath. And the effects of the wrath, it doesn't mar us. There's no blemish there. There's no scent of it. There's nothing. But you were in it. How do you get out of it without anything? Well, let's read this. Colossians 1, 20-22 says this, And through Him, to reconcile all things to Himself, having made peace through the blood of His cross, through Him, I say, whether things on earth or things in heaven, and although you were formerly alienated and hostile in mind, engaged in evil deeds, listen to this, Yet He has now reconciled you in His fleshly body through His death. There's the fire. That's where He took. That's the wrath. Now listen. In order to present you before Him holy and blameless and beyond reproach. The marring of sin. The stink of sin. The effect of sin. When the Father looks at those whom are redeemed, He doesn't see any of it. Why? Because he who knew no sin became sin so that we could become the righteousness of God. So when he looks at us, there's not a sin, a scar of sin. There's not a hint of sin because he sees the righteousness of Christ applied to us. Listen to what he says in Ephesians 5, talking about the church. You're going to see a theme here. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself up for her. Who did he give his life up for? The church so that He might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water in the Word, that He might present uh, to Himself the church in all her glory, having no spot, no wrinkle, or any such thing, but that she would be holy and blameless. No sin can enter into heaven. But we have sin. We sin. Have we sinned this week? Have we done something we have, that God has commanded us to do that we don't, or He's forbidden us to do something that we do? If it were up to us, we would be marred with sin all the time. But you've got a covering. You've got a righteousness that's on you so that the, the smell of the fire doesn't come to you. So that there's nothing on you that he looks at you and says, but I smell it. I see it. I don't. I don't see it. I don't smell it. Why? Because there was one who came to rescue you. And he covered you with that righteousness. This is, this is what the story is saying. He tells us this in Jude 24 and 25. He says, Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to make you stand in the presence of his glory, blameless with great joy, to the only God our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time, now and forever. There's Romans 8, 1 through 4, which I'll hit on very much tomorrow. And Agape says, therefore, there's now no condemnation. Why? For those who are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do, weak as it was through the flesh, God did. Sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and as an offering for sin, He condemned sin in the flesh, so that the requirement of the law 
The full, the full requirement might be fulfilled in us. We do not walk according to the flesh, but according to the Spirit. And then we can go to the back of the book, Revelation chapter 19. It says, let us rejoice, verse 7 and 9 through 9. Let us rejoice and be glad and give glory to me, for Him. For the marriage of the Lamb has come and the bride has made herself ready. It was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. There's no stain of sin on those linens. There's not a smell of it. There's not a stain of it. Just like it was when they came out of this fire. They were bright and clean and fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, Right, blessed are those who are invited to the marriage supper of the Lamb. And He said to me, these are the true words of God. How many times have you saw that their hair wasn't singed? Their clothes had no effect. That's because they were covered and made blameless and perfect in this symbolic story of redemption. Again, think about this. Helpless, bound. Do you think they said to themselves, I think I'll just set myself free right now. Let me tell you this, if Christ wouldn't have come, if God wouldn't have come and rescued them, you know where they'd have been? They'd have still been there. And that's the story of redemption. Isn't it? That's where we're all at until the rescuer comes. Sets you free. Takes the sin, the stink, the mar of sin off of you. Covers you in fine linens in the righteousness of Christ. We also see that this is being rescued out of a furnace. There's also symbolic imagery here to Egypt. If you remember, the, the people, they were in Egypt, the children of Israel were in Egypt, and what happened? They were enslaved, and Christ set them free. Listen to these words in Deuteronomy 4.20. It says this, But the Lord has taken you out and brought you out of the iron furnace from Egypt to be people for His own possession as today. You see the linking here? So not only does the furnace represent the eternal punishment in hell and the slavery that is there and being dead in sin and wrath of God, but Egypt is referenced in the Old Testament as a furnace. Now, where were the children of Israel at? In Egypt, enslaved, bound, couldn't set themselves free. We know that story. That after the Passover lamb, after he paid the price, went into the fire, took the wrath, then what happens? He goes, just like he does Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, looses them from their bondage and sets them free. 1 Kings 8.51 says, For they are, they are your people and your inheritance which you have brought forth from Egypt from the midst of the iron furnace. Jeremiah 11.4, Which I commanded your forefathers in the day that I brought them out of the land of Egypt from the iron furnace, saying, Listen to my voice and do according to all which I command you so that you shall be my people and I will be your God. You see, it just all starts to fit together. Did you know that Egypt represented a furnace? Do you know there's language of that? Did you know that they were exiles in Babylon? They were enslaved. They couldn't set themselves free, deserving of wrath. But here comes God. But where else do we see smoke out of a furnace? Well, Genesis 19. I told you I regretted reading the chapter, so let me just read a verse. It says, and he looked down towards Sodom and Gomorrah. And we remember that type in shadow. And toward the land of the valley. And he saw 
And behold, the smoke of the land ascended like the smoke of a furnace. Revelation 14, 9 through 12. Then another angel, a third one, followed them, saying with a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast in his image, here's Nebuchadnezzar. See the symbol? Here's the beast, here's the image. Nebuchadnezzar, here's the image. And receives a mark on his forehead or his hand, he will drink the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Listen to that sentence. Let me read that again. He will drink of the wine of the wrath of God, which is mixed in full strength in the cup of his anger. Do you remember what Jesus said that he had to drink on the cross? He says, listen, if there's any other way, let this cup pass from me. But, nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. You know why he had to go? Think about the first part of that prayer. If there's any other way, then I won't go. Guess what? There's only one way. And this wrath right here that we just read, the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength with the cup of His anger, Christ took that. And that was the cup He drank on the cross for His people. I remember a story. There's a guy named Leonard Ravenhill. He was an old-time preacher, and he tells a story. I think, and again, I'm getting skewed on these details a little bit, but he was over in across the pond. He was over somewhere in England, maybe, and he was he was a preacher at this church, and he said he was on his way to church one night, and he said this old lady, who you could tell she didn't have anything. She lived in this little place, just dirty. She said, "I know you." You're that preacher, aren't you? Yes, ma'am. Would you come in for a moment? I'd like to offer you some tea. He says he goes into this place. He says, you can't imagine what I saw. And he said he looks around. He doesn't see anything clean. And he sees the lady go into the sink. He says, can I offer you some tea? And he looked at the sink. He saw dead animals. He saw mold. He saw filth. And he saw that lady pick it up. Try to rinse it out a little bit. Pour the tea in it. That's horrible, isn't it? He's like, I'll never forget the stench. I'll never forget the smell. I'll never forget it, it at all. Because it was the worst cup of anything I've ever seen. And he said in that moment... His mind went to that verse about the cup that the Lord took. You talk about the most grotesque thing. Every sin of every one of His people. Think about some of the the wickedest, most defiled sins that any believer has ever committed. Think about your life. Think about how grotesque it is in front of a holy God. And that cup that lady had that day was nothing compared to the cup that Christ would have to drink to redeem His people. But He did do that. That's why He was in the fire with them. 
But those who will die dead in their sins, they will then taste the wrath that was poured out on Christ that day. And it will be the wine of the wrath of God mixed in full strength in the cup of His anger. And He will be tormented with fire and brimstone in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Did you catch that? In the presence of who? That no matter where they go, this omnipresent God will be there to deliver perfect wrath and perfect justice for all eternity. And the smoke of their torments will go up forever and ever. You're not getting out of it. There's no purgatory. The smoke of your torments will rise forever and ever. They will have no rest day and night. Those who worship the beast and his image and who receives the mark of his name. Here is the perseverance of the saints who keep the commands of God and have their faith in Christ. So we see Sodom and Gomorrah, the smoke of the furnace. We see the eternity of the smoke being raised from their torment from those who have not been rescued by God and will then take the wrath that he took in his cup on the cross. That's why he's in the fire with them. If you remember what regeneration is, if you remember what being born again is, it is not him standing at a distance outside the fire and saying, come on, set yourself free. But he chases you down. He seeks and saves those who are lost. And he begins to loose the chains. He sets you free out of the furnace, just like he did the furnace of Egypt. So there's no marring of sin. There's no smell of sin. You've escaped the wrath. You've escaped the punishment because he's drank that cup and took that fire and wrath for you. There's a story that comes to mind. Is I was listening to a, a guy. that uh, He has a YouTube channel, Fighting for the Faith. Chris Roseboro, he's a, he's a pastor in, I think, South Dakota? North Dakota? I don't know which one it is. But he said this story. And I remember the first time hearing this and... It just hit me because this is the story. You want to get down to it. You want to see the faith of a child. You want to see just the true bridal excitement of a child. Here it is. He said that every night him and his family would sit around the table just like this. And he would read the word of God to them. And he said he remembers the night where his little daughter, very young, they were all sitting around, but she had stole the show that night. He's reading the story of, of the three men here in the fire in Daniel 3. And he gets to the point where he says that, look, here's another in the fire. And, and he's come to rescue them. And, and he's set them free. And this little girl couldn't contain herself. She said, Daddy, Daddy, Daddy. Jesus saved them. He saved them. Isn't that the story of the gospel? Isn't that the story that you see here? Isn't that the story you see in Egypt? Isn't that the story that you see in your life? That you deserve this fire. You deserve that wrath. You're enslaved and in bondage and you can't do it. Oh, but here comes the Son of God. Because He took your place. 
He suffered that wrath that was due you. Drank the cup of that wrath. And then he hunted you down. He sought after you. And he set you free. And then you are not marred with sin. You don't have a stain of sin. And when this, the father looks at you, he sees the perfected righteousness of his son. Did I mention they were exiles? Did I mention that they were not in their home? Did I mention that you are too? That you're exiles roaming through this land? And if you're a Christian, that this has happened to you? That Christ has saved you, set you free. And Babylon's going to fall one day. And then guess where you're going to be? Your final home. Jerusalem. Can we be like this little girl? And say, he saved them. He saved them. To him will be the glory forever and ever. Amen. He also tells us this promise. Now he's talking to these men in this context, but in Isaiah 43, verse 1 through 2, here's what he says. But now, thus says the Lord, your creator, O Jacob, and you who formed you, O Israel, do not fear. For I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. When you pass through the waters, oh, he was there with them then, wasn't he? I will be with you. And through the rivers, they will not overflow you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched, nor will the flame burn you. He saved us. He saved us. He saved us. So I hope tonight as we bring that all to a close, Maybe we could say two things. That the Bible is better than what we've made it. And there's more to this story.